So we're in the book of Revelation. As I said earlier, we're dealing with the second of eight major sections in the book. Uh, it's a really exciting book. It's not a scary book. It's not a book that we need to be frightened of studying. It's a book that we need to dive into. We need to understand because in it is a whole lot of stuff that we need to know. Stuff that encourages us, reminds us of certain things. And I hope to do that this morning as well. But this section sort of moves from John just speaking specifically to the seven churches, about the seven churches, to, John, to Jesus speaking to John now about what's going to happen in the world. And so he's still talking to the church. The letter is still to the church. But he's saying, let me give you a bit of a bigger perspective of what I'm about to unleash and do in the world around us. Uh, last week's passage, we opened with these words. And I just want to remind us of it because Sam brought it up this morning. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 says, After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Sam said that we become what we behold. Uh, and that's such a powerful statement. And I want to just honor Sam for his great leadership. And I do want to say, just on that note, we value the next generation in this church. We're a multi-generational church that values every generation. There is a deposit in every single person here. No matter how old you are, no matter what you look like, no matter where you've come from, there is a deposit in you. And I believe God's speaking to us quite loudly these days, especially through our youth. So thank you for bringing that word, Sam. But there's an important thing to consider in this verse. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And so what John's seeing right now in this vision is he's seeing the throne room of God. He's in the presence of Almighty God. He's been removed from this earth, taken up into heaven, whether that's physically, mentally, spiritually, we don't really know. It doesn't really matter, but he's in the presence of God, and he beholds this throne. And what I want to say about that is it's interesting because the, the throne was always there. The throne never moved. God never got off it. He's always been on it. There is no such time where God abdicated the throne and left us like an abandoned sort of child or you know, an absentee landlord. He's always been on the throne. But what John was required to do to be able to see the fullness of what God wanted to show him is he had to look. Ryan reminded us of this this past week in our worship night, and it's such an important word. And I say that to you because here's the deal. If we don't look, we can never behold. If John never looked, he would never have seen what God was inviting him into. There's a responsibility on us to remember that God is inviting us into a relationship this morning. And what he wants us to do is to look at him. And I'm saying this to us because I, of all people, know that often I behave in a way where I allow my circumstances, my situations, my problems, to put it bluntly, to become the very thing that I focus on. Those are the things that consume me. The future of the world consumes me. The future of my family consumes, consumes me. My finances, my jobs, whatever the things are in your life that's got you right now, those are the things that I'm looking at all the time. And if it's true what Sam said, which it is, if we become what we behold, then guess what? You're not in a good place if you do that. It's that place where I find myself in despair, feeling like there's no hope. Or it's that place where, even worse, I try and take control over my own destiny. I don't know if anyone here has ever tried to take control of their own destiny and do things for themselves, right? You know, after I've done I do that, I do that. I still struggle with that, so I'm being really honest here with you guys. But sometimes I look at the future and think, oh, you know, God needs a hand. You know, he, I mean, I know that's where he wants me to go, but I'm going to just help him along this process. He's busy. I mean, he's, he's dealing with Charlie's issues. That consumes him. I'm uh, just kidding. But he is busy, and so I'm going to step in and help God along the journey. The challenge with that is that every single time I've done that, it ended off for me pretty badly. We don't need to take the reins from God. We don't need to take control of our lives because God is in control. 
The nation of Israel was promised in Exodus 17 a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Why? Because God wanted to remind them that no matter how uncertain the future may look, guess what? I'm going to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. I will take you where you need to go. All we have to do is cast our gaze back on him. So I want to encourage us with that this morning. If your eyes are on your situation, take them off. If they're on your circumstances, take them off. Behold, the Lord is on the throne. And when we live in that place of looking at God on the rightful throne that he leads, we are invited into his presence. A presence that reminds us that no matter what season we're in, no matter what we're going through in our lives, no matter how hard it may be, God has got us because he's got this. And when I say this, I'm talking about all of creation and eternity, past, present, and future. Amen. We also highlighted last week something from the Lord's Prayer. Last week I said that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we often, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was brought up to pray the Lord's Prayer almost as a ritual, and I just did it. It lost its meaning to me. But the Lord's Prayer is pretty beautiful and pretty powerful. In fact, it is beautiful and powerful, and it says some really significant things. One of the things that we pray often and just glance over it is we say, Lord, let things be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we saw last week is that prayer, yes, speaks to the eternity that we get to experience one day, the future in God's presence, experiencing the fullness of God and all the benefits that God gives us, both in heaven and on the new earth that he's going to create. But what it also reminds us is that we are a people that can experience some of the kingdom on this earth. We can experience something something of the kingdom here on this earth. I say that because just like heaven is the place where God's glory is obvious, earth can be the place where God's glory is evident. But it relies on us to welcome God's glory into this place. How often do we just go to church because that's what we do on a Sunday morning? Can I ask a question? I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm speaking to myself first. But what would happen if we came here expecting the glory of God to be poured out? What would happen in our prayer closets if we expected the glory of God to be poured out? What would happen in the lives that we're reaching in the city if we expected the glory of God to be reached out? And I want to say to you, the glory of God is not some, you know, ether. This is not Ghostbusters where we're trying to capture the glory of God and put him in an essence and seal it up and say, here's the glory. We've bottled it. We're going to sell it. No, the glory of God is his manifest presence. God gives us the assurance that we have him with us all the time. But there is a moment where God wants to manifest himself in power. And it doesn't matter who's there or where you are. It's not about the building. It's not about the place. It's about him. But when the power of God is present, chains and shackles are broken. Lives are set free. You see, if this earth could be like heaven, we would understand that like they are united in heaven, then we as God's church should be united too. The old covenant, new covenant, the 24 elders seated around the throne, representation that everything's come together in Christ, is a reminder to us as the church that we shouldn't just contend for unity, we should expect it. Now I know when I say that, every one of us in this room has probably got a bad story about church. Everyone has been hurt by somebody in the church. Everybody's experienced division in the church. What a poor indictment on the church. I'm speaking to myself too. Because if there's one place where we should be united, it is the kingdom of God. And if this is the representation of the kingdom, we need to contend for unity and we need to expect unity. We need to strive for it, fight for it, contend for it, expect it from one another. That's an encouragement, by the way. Just like heaven is the place where God's power is manifested, we want to see the power of God manifested too. Not just His glory, but His power. The dunamis power of the Holy Spirit is something that was received post-salvation. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us, but there's this distinct event, something that's promised by God to His church. It says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The church is so busy doing the work of the Lord, but there's no power in it. I want to be a church that is full of God's power. And please, honestly, I don't want to just come here because I have to be here or do stuff. I want to experience the power of God. 
And I, and I just want that expectation to rise in us. Just like heaven is a place of absolute peace, it tells me that we can experience peace this side of eternity too. Why? Because our hope is not in situations, it's not in circumstances, it's not in outcomes, it's not in our bank balance, it's not in who wins the Super Bowl. Our hope and our peace is in Christ. He has won the war. And just like heaven is a place of worship, we are a people that live in the reality that worship is not something we do when we carve out those five minutes of our day, or when we come to church on a Sunday morning, or when we go into our prayer closet, or we do a worship night at church, worship is something we do all the time. And it's something we'll touch on this morning. In fact, our last two points are going to deal with worship as well. But this morning, as this vision progresses, we're going to see that God is not just worthy of our worship as the Creator. Remember last week, all the saints and the angels, the living beings, fell down before God, worshipped Him as the Creator of everything. A God who did not abandon his creation, but was going to restore it. Today, we're going to also see Jesus and God the Father as our redeemers. And that's cause for celebration. So let's turn to Revelation 5. We're going to go into verse 1. I just want to pray, and then we can jump right in. Father, I don't want to be here just regurgitating what I said before. or Anything, Lord, that's of my own flesh. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us today that you would speak clearly and take us in whatever direction you want us to go. Pray that the words this morning that we read from your word would become revelation to us, not just knowledge. I pray that we would find freedom in them, that we would find comfort in them, that we would find security in them, and that every one of us, myself at the top of the list, would grow to greater statures of faith this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I've got six points just to remind us where we're at. We're in the throne room. Uh, that is not the throne room, just to be clear. That's a picture of what John is probably seeing from the top. It's nothing like the glory of God. It's nothing like the magnificence of what, what John's seeing. But at the center of this picture is God. He's on the throne. Then around him, we've got his glory that's being manifested and radiated from his presence. Then you've got the four living creatures, those weird creatures with eyes inside and outside, which freaks me out. But anyway, they're there, and they're worshiping God. These are powerful beings. You've got the Lamb, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that this morning. We've got the Holy Spirit represented in the menorah, the seven spirits of God, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of the Lord, the Messiah. And then outside of that, you've got the 24 elders represented by those 24 dotted lines, the throne that represent, those thrones represent those that rule and reign with Christ, the saints. And then around that, what we're going to touch on this morning is the many angels, the multitudes, and all the other creatures in heaven and earth. This is what God's perspective is. He rules and reigns from the center of the universe. Sometimes I think the center of the universe revolves around my daughter, right? I love her, but man, she's, like, she's a force to be reckoned with. But how often do we put ourselves at the center of the universe? Sometimes I put myself at the center of the universe. Everything's about me. God's not at the, I mean, we're not at the center of the uni universe. God is, and we need to remember that. Verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him, speaking of God, who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And that brings us to point number one. And that is that God's plans are final. They're not a work in progress. They're not being figured out. God isn't waiting for us on this earth to decide what we want to do so he can determine what's going to happen next. No, his plans are final. How do we know that? Well, the scroll's sealed. It's not just sealed. It's sealed with seven seals. I mean, there's seven specific sections in the scroll, but the scroll is sealed. I don't know if anyone here has any... Uh, Writing ability and or likes to write postings, go on social media, whatever it is, whatever your platform of choice is. I can tell you one thing that none of us would do, especially on social media, is we wouldn't write halfway through something we wanted to say and then just say, oh, you know, it's fine. I'll just put it out there. Let me just see it, send it out and post it. 
we would finish what it is that we wanted to say. God would never seal the scroll if he hadn't finished what he wanted to say. The story has been written. Eternity past, present, and future is in God's hands. It's known. It's not unknown. It's not a mystery to God. He knows what's going to happen. And that tells me that God's plans are complete. And if we think of the character and the nature of the God that we serve, a God who loves us, who wants us to be in fellowship and in communion with him, by God's plans being complete, we can be assured that our plans are complete in Christ. The second thing that we see from the scroll is that it has writing on the back of it and the front of it. Why is that significant? You know, I, I, don't, know, I don't think that God didn't run out of paper. He didn't go to Office Depot and say, oh, I forgot to buy an extra roll of papyrus. And so let me write on the front of the scroll at the same time as I want to run on the back of the scroll. This is the eternal God of the universe, right? So why is he writing on the front and on the back? I want to say that it's a powerful picture of how God has communicated something of what's in the scroll to us already. You see, back in the day when people used to write scrolls, I know it's very foreign to us because I haven't written a scroll in at least three years. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, none of us write scrolls, right? But what we do do is read books, right? Often, what do you find at the front of a book? You find a what? A, yes, you find a cover. That's good. You get a cover in, inside. Maybe let me be a bit more specific. What do we find inside when you go beyond the cover? You find an index, right? You find a little bit of a list of all the things that you can expect to find within the book. It tells you in short summary, like if you go to Amazon and you say, try this book now, they give you the index, basically. The index and the prologue. What? Contents. Whatever. Is, it not, is that what you call it here? Contents. Okay, well, I mean, we're getting all technical now about books. I'm clearly not a book person, but you get a summary, okay? The Amazon summary, click here before you buy, try a preview, that's what you're getting. There's a preview that's written on the front of the scroll. Back in the day, what they used to do, especially in important documents that were going to be sealed, in other words, only opened by the person with the requisite authority, that document would, would contain on the outside what they would expect to find on the inside. And what that tells me is that this message that's been sealed and can only be opened by someone specific has already, in some sense, been communicated to us as the church and as God's people. Here's an example, Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 9. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. Sound familiar? And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So this is pointing forward to what we can expect to find in this scroll in the book of Revelation. We can expect to find three things. A warning of lamentation, woe, and basically what it says is judgment. In the context of Ezekiel, Ezekiel was writing to the nation of Israel, a nation who had turned their back on their gods. On their God, sorry. A nation who had become rebellious. And so in the context of that scroll, this was about judgment. And so we can expect something of judgment to be included in this. Because equally, just like the nation of Israel has rebelled against God, guess what? Humanity has rebelled against God. It wasn't just the nation of Israel. We're all, apart from Christ, in a state of rebellion. The world is in a state of rebellion. That's why it's in chaos. Another clue comes from Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That's the Hebrew word sapphire. It means a scroll, a codex, something that would be written onto a document. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Two options for the entirety of the world. Not many options to God, not multiple ways to get there, two ways. Some will rise to eternal life, some will rise to eternal condemnation. Therein lies the biggest challenge that we face in the world today. We've got to get as many people on the right side of that decision. But in the Daniel context, 
what we see is that this book is not just about trouble. Yes, it's about difficult times that are going to come. What the scroll contains is not just the judgments and the woe. There's a promise in it, a promise of inheritance, a promise of, gl- a promise of glory, a promise of a future that can never be taken from us. And so when we read the book of Revelation and we start to unpack the scroll, we have to understand that, yes, there's judgments, but there's a glorious inheritance attached to it too. And when we put all of this together, and there are many other examples in the Old Testament. We just don't have time to go through all of them today. There's many examples of what is written in the scroll, the picture of the scroll, and you combine it with what John is seeing right now in the throne room. We get insight as to what the scroll is all about. And the scroll is about the purposes and the plan of God as they are lived out in the eternity of the world. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. And so it's critical that we understand what he's saying. Unfortunately, there's a challenge. Does anyone know what the challenge is? The scroll is sealed. The scroll is sealed. We don't have the detail. Good job, Jensen. We have a picture, but we don't have all the information. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus actually speaking to Daniel, giving him this revelation, says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end, until the time of the end. And so our challenge is that the scroll is sealed. And I want to say this. I know it sounds a bit weird, and please hear my heart when I say this, but here's the deal. An unopened scroll, a scroll that remains to be sealed, points to a hopeless future. Let me explain what I mean by that. If the scroll stays sealed, if it doesn't ever get opened, if we can't see what's inside, then we as God's people will have no hope of ever knowing what God's plans and purposes are. We'll never know what God wants to do. We won't know what the destiny of the world is. We won't know what our inheritance is all about. Revelations 5 verse 2, the angel realizes that there's a problem in this too. And so he asks the question, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? There's a key word there, worthy. We sang that song. Who is worthy? Not who can, not who can rip the cells off, but who is worthy. It's like, you know, that guy Thanos' gauntlet, right? You can't just put your hand in it if you're not worthy. You will die. Ask Iron Man. He'll tell you. It's very sad. Sad Marvel story. My point being, only someone who is worthy can open the scrolls. Everyone's like, this guy's lost his mind. But here's what the angel is ultimately asking, because it's a far bigger question than just who is worthy. What he is saying is who is capable, who has the power, who has the authority, who has the ability to carry forward God's plans and purposes. And if his plans and purposes are for our good, then we need somebody to carry them forward. Revelations 5.3, and no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And therein lies the challenge. For so long, we as humanity have tried to shake our fists at God and pretend that we are worthy, that we can do it, that we can fix the world. The truth is, how many people have failed? Everyone that's ever tried to do that has not completed the job. And so it's telling us there is no human being that can do this job. There is no one alive on this earth today that can do the job. What's more, there is no angelic being. And I'm talking about those weird, crazy beings with the eyes everywhere, the powerful beings, these huge supernatural beings. Neither can they do what God needs them to do. And so John responds with this reality. And I began to weep loudly, not quietly, loudly. Have you ever wept loudly? said, you're crying. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Honestly, before I really started studying the book of Revelation, I'd read it in my daily devotionals, and as I was going through the Bible in the year, and I'd always get to that, and I'd think, gosh, John was like such a melodramatic guy. 
Like he's like weeping loudly because nobody can open the scroll. But I never really understood what the significance of an unopened scroll meant. And I want to tell you the significance this morning. You see, if the scroll never got opened, if the scroll was never opened for us, if the scroll was never opened to fulfill the plans and the purposes of God, you know what we would be living in? We would be living in a world where salvation was not real. Not that it was not real, but it was never going to be a possibility for us. Why? Because none of us in this room are worthy enough to stand before God the Father in His justice, in His righteousness, in His truth, and in His purity. We would die before Him. There would be no salvation. If God's plans and purposes could not be revealed and be manifest and be carried forward, we would have no inheritance. Because guess what? If you can't go to heaven, then you're not going to get there. And so that means that all we have is what we have on this earth. That's pretty hopeless to me. An unopened scroll means that we would live in a world when the judgments of God are poured out on it, that we would face the full brunt of them and not be protected in them. Now, I want to be clear. Protection does not mean exemption. I said this last week. We are living in the world, which means we will suffer alongside it. But there is a promise in this text and in the book of Revelation that God will supernaturally protect his people. Does that mean you won't have a hard time? Does it mean you won't experience tough times? No, but he will hold us in his hand. And that open scroll points to a hopeless future, friends. The good news is that there is one that is worthy. Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Maybe you've come here this morning, and you are feeling pretty hopeless. Maybe the circumstances of this world, the situations of this world have really got you down. Maybe you feel like you can't carry on. Maybe it's just anger with God or anger with people or whatever it is that you're dealing with this morning. I'm not trying to minimize it, but what I want to say to you is this. There is good news. The one thing that we as God's children have not called to live is a hopeless life. In fact, God's children are the most hope-filled people in all of creation. Why? Because we have an infinite hope in an infinite Savior. The Bible says that Jesus has conquered, past tense. Not will conquer, not might conquer, not potentially could conquer. We're, betting, we're putting all our money on Jesus. No, he has conquered. What we look at, we become. What we behold, we will become, right? And if we look at the conquering king, you know what that makes me? It makes me a conquering Christ Jesus. It makes me a person filled of hope, filled of dreams, filled with ambition, filled with the future that God's got for me. Not somebody who's living in a place where the enemy is telling me all of these lies. The Bible says that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the promised king of Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, as he's blessing his children, the 12 tribes, he stops at Judah and he says, The scepter of my rule shall not depart from this tribe. David's son, ultimately, Jesus, from that lineage, would become the king of kings. Never to be replaced, never to be you know, taken off the throne. He is always on the throne. That's the reality of the king we serve. He's on the throne. He's been on the throne and he'll stay on the throne. He says that he's the root of David, Isaiah 11.10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. Friends, there is hope because Jesus is our signal. In the wilderness, Moses had to raise his staff. Charlie reminded me of it this week because he had the staff in his office with a snake on it. Moses raised the staff as a symbol for the nation of Israel to look. And guess what? Then they'd be saved from sickness. 
Jesus has become the signal. That's what the text says. He will become the signal. He will become the rallying cry. He will become the point, the center of our focus. And when we do that, guess what? We find hope. We find security. We find strength. Both now and forevermore, we will find a resting place. We can live at rest in Christ. Revelations 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth, the Holy Spirit. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Just a quick point there. You notice that the seven spirits of God have been sent. Not going to be sent, not will be sent, not may be sent, have been sent. The Spirit of the Lord is with us. On the day of Pentecost, God sent us the promised Holy Spirit. We have him with us today. The manifest power of God is here. Just as a reminder again, not waiting for it, not hoping for it. We all want revival and we're waiting for it like it's some distant thing that's going to happen. Revival can break out at any moment. Why? Because where God is, revival will happen. I don't know why I said that. But here's the next thing. We have to understand that Jesus is both lion and lamb. And I want to say this. In order for Jesus to become worthy, in order for Jesus to become the one that could open the seven seals, he needed to become the lamb. Let me explain that a little bit more. There was a moment in history that this event in Revelation is talking about. A moment when the lamb was slain. It's the moment on the cross. It's that moment in time where Jesus cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. In Daniel 7, he has this picture of what was happening, I believe, on the day that Jesus was crucified. In fact, in that moment when Jesus was finally victorious, it says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. Think about this. God's on the throne. Jesus comes to him. He takes the scroll and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Even South African people who speak funny, just to be clear. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The defining moment in all of history was the cross. Jesus became worthy by his blood like a lamb to the slaughter. He paid the price for all of us. And guess what? As God's people, we live in that inheritance. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. In other words, don't worry about what the will says. Fix your mind on Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where our word excruciating comes from. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Notice, nobody could open it on heaven, under earth, and in the, everywhere, but Jesus can. Because guess what? He's everywhere. And every tongue will confess that Jesus, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross changed everything. The seal has been opened. It is unraveled. And as we go through Revelations, we will see this over and over again. God's mysteries, God's plans, God's purposes are found in Christ. And that tells us that Jesus shares the Father's authority. It tells us that he took the right to receive honor and glory. Why? Because this text tells me that Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father, on the throne with the Father. Jesus has become the king of the universe in that moment. 
It tells us that because he's the king of the universe and because he loves his people, he will bring us as his church to glory. He will lead us through all the difficulties, the, the challenges, the tribulation, all of the stuff that we're going to face. Jesus will be right there with us and he'll get us through it. It's such a beautiful way and picture of Jesus. We all have this concept of what Jesus looks like in our mind. But what we need to see is he's a lion and he's a lamb. On the one hand, he's the lion that roars at the sins of the world. But on the other hand, he's the lamb who died for the sins of the world. And that brings us to a question. If we died today, and we were standing before Jesus, because we will, every one of us will, would we see the lion who wants to devour our sin? Or will we see the lamb who died for it? The way that works out is it depends on how we acknowledge and respond to Jesus this side of eternity. Unfortunately, there is no decision that we can make post our death. There is no decision that we can make when Jesus returns. The decision we need to make is now. Will he be the lion or will he be the lamb? I want the lamb. I love the lion because guess what? He's going to bring justice and judgment and he's going to fix the things. But personally, I want the lamb. I need forgiveness. Revelations 5 verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is a picture of worship now. It's our last two points. We're going to talk about this concept of worship and what worship is. In this particular picture, we see that worship is a celebration. There's musical instruments involved. But I do want to say to you that we have done a great job in the American church and the church at large to make worship something we attend something we look at, something we want other people to do on our behalf. I want you to know that nobody can worship for you, just to be clear. No matter how gifted the musicians might be, no matter how talented the people are that you go and watch at the concert, they cannot worship on your behalf. We have to worship God. Worship, part of it is prayer. It says that the prayers of the saints were brought before God. The Bible says that the prayers are like incense that rise up to the Father. Our prayer life is part of our worship life. It's not just about singing. It's not just about participating in song and dance. It's about prayer. And guess what? It extends even beyond that. For some of us, our worship may look different to others. Not everybody in this room is called to be a music uh, teacher or singer, and some of us should, really shouldn't, um, like myself included. Don't put me up there. We'll scare everybody away. But my, the point I'm trying to make is worship is what we do. Worship is who we are. I said it earlier. It's not something we do sometimes. It's something we do all the time. Now, having said that, I'm the first person to admit that there are moments in my life where I struggle to worship. There's moments where I just feel like, ah, oh, man, I'd rather watch Netflix. Honestly. I mean, I don't know if anyone else has ever experienced that. But I know I have. And what I want to tell us this morning is that one of the most important ways we can bring our hearts back to worship is to remind ourselves of one of the main reasons we worship. Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We live in a world where we ascribe greatness to people so quickly. We live in a world where we exalt people to godlike statuses all the time. If they've got 100 million followers on Twitter, that guy must be really important and amazing. Whether they're a celebrity, a movie star, or a tweet talk follower, I mean, TikTok, a TikTok person, it doesn't matter. In comparison to the one person 
who changed the course of history, past, present, and future, who continues to hold the world in the palm of his hand, who holds our destiny and our salvation in his palm of hands. There is no other person that is worthy of our worship. Now, you can admire people. You can say, wow, these people did a great job, but there is one person only worthy of our worship. The moment we start worshiping man or systems or things, we've become idolaters. Only one person is worthy of our worship. And so we worship not because we have to, but because we're grateful. The Bible says that he's ransomed us. He's paid the price. He bought us with no expectations from us. Not when you were good. Not when you were finally off the booze or whatever it is that your vice was. He bought you, paid for you at the moment that you gave your life to the Lord. There was no conditions placed on your salvation. Yes, after the salvation, God starts to transform us, but that's a journey. But there is no requirement for us to be anything apart from humble and say, Lord, I need you in my life because I can't do this without you. That's why we worship. And I also want to say this, is that worship is a gift. It's not a chore, it's not a task. I know, I know sometimes it can feel like that, but it isn't. But I also want to tell us that it reminds us of some powerful realities. Revelations 5 verse 11, Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It reminds us, worship, that we are saved. Remember last week, the elders and the living beings were super excited about God the Creator restoring His creation. Well, now they're worshiping God as the Redeemer. When we worship God, we're reminding ourselves that we have been saved. That no matter what the enemy has told you this week, no matter what you've done, you are saved still. No one and nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That's what my Bible says, and I believe it. Salvation is not you know, momentary, or we've got it today and we lose it tomorrow. Salvation is given to us by Christ on the cross. And if He gave it to us, nobody can take it away from me. Jesus is not schizophrenic. He called us. He knew us before the foundations of the world, and he appointed us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart from God for his possession. That's who we are in Christ. We are saved. And then it says this in verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, Tyler, you can come up, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living, living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Last thing I want to just say to us that worship reminds us of, and maybe before I do that, let me remind us of something else. God does not need our worship. Okay, he's not waiting in heaven for us to supernaturally charge him with our praises so that he can continue unfolding the rest of eternity. God doesn't need us to worship him because he has a poor self-image and he wants to hear the praises of man to remind himself who he is. God is infinitely good. He's infinitely perfect. He's infinitely complete. He doesn't need our worship, but he invites us into worship because when we worship, what we are doing is we are reminding ourselves that we are a people who believe in how things really are. You see, the world out there doesn't worship God because they don't believe this. But we as believers, every time we lift up the name of Jesus, we praise God, we gather together in our prayer closets, maybe not all of us in our prayer closets, but when we gather together, or when we're praying in our prayer closets, or when we're meeting with friends, or when we're praying for a couple, or when we're witnessing on the streets, and we're aiming our gaze towards God, we are reminding ourselves and the enemy that we are a people who live in a kingdom that is owned by a king, and his name is Jesus. And every time our praises ascend into heaven, we remind ourselves of that fact. 
And so if you're down, depressed, broken, feeling like you can't carry on, the way out of your problems and your challenges is not to go to a doctor or a psychiatrist, although I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. The way out of your problem is with worship. Because in worship, we're saying, actually, this is how things are. Yes, it might not disappear instantly and all of a sudden our problems are fixed, but we're saying this is the reality that we live in. This is the truth. The rest of this is a lie. And that's what worship does for us. It brings us back to the throne room. It brings us back at the feet of the Father, like Mary, sitting before Jesus, saying, Lord, pour your spirit out on me because I, I can't do this without you. He's our source. He's our strength. He's our power. He's our redeeming king. He is the conquering king, and he will come back. That is for sure. Whether we see it or not is inconsequential. One day we will experience it. And when we worship from that heart, we become a people who have hope amidst of hopelessness, peace in all the troubles of the world, strength when temptations arise. And just like the elders, angels, saints, and all the living creatures fell down and worshipped God, so do we. Not because we have to, but because He's worthy. And it's from that place of worthiness that we want to worship Him. I'm going to ask Sam to come up and share a word that he had this morning. I think it ties into what we've been speaking about. Hopefully it will speak to some of you. I know it will. And then after that word, we're going to close with a song. Y'all can stand to your feet. As I was praying just for this morning, uh, this, as I was praying for this morning, this morning, I felt the Lord put the scripture on my heart. It's Exodus 14, 14. And in the context of, I feel like a sense that people here may be struggling with just strife. Like in Romans 7, Paul talks about it being like, I, I want to do what pleases God, but my flesh brings me to do something, the opposite, really. And it, and it leaves people in this place of discouragement and, and this constant battle being waged between your flesh and your spirit. And I love God because his fight's a little different than ours. There's a spiritual battle going on at all times, and, and our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual rulers, principalities, authorities. And the Bible says this, when, when the Egyptians were, being, were chasing the Israelites uh, towards the Red Sea and they're cornered, uh, all the Israelites start freaking out. They're like, well, it would have been better if we stayed in Egypt to be enslaved, and we, we would have been killed there. Better be, it would have been better than coming, coming here. And Exodus 14, 14 says, this is Moses talking. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he says be still. It doesn't mean do nothing. It means be still in the presence of God. And worship. We respond. He talked about worship. We respond with worship. We find rest in our king. Find freedom today as we sing this next song. You don't have to strive to try to do the right thing. Find rest in his presence. And from that place, God will transform your heart and transform your behavior. He cares more about your heart than your habits. So give your heart to him in this place today. Let's worship our King.